Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So uh, All right. what I was uh, saying was it'd be great if iOS allowed you to program like universal responses that could be buttons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you could then just have populate into like any program. Um, that'd be pretty amazing. Uh, that would be fun. Yeah. And then you could uh, you could be sending me fuck you messages when I'm, I'm needing the, the, yeah, I mean, the now, double authentication. Now, now I only do that on Valentine's Day. <laughs> do don't forget best friends day oh don't yeah right best friends day. <laughs> no that's what i called you a piece of shit <laughs> i call you a lazy piece of shit on best friends day valentine's day is when i say fuck you <laughs> there's a difference uh, you know it's all love to me well you know yeah <laughs> I, 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 I i i'm i i paint you know in hues subtle hues and for you it's more binary <laughs> I, I understand <laughs> oh man um that's right that's right Hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we're going to take a step back in time and into a bar from the past as we rub elbows with the beats. We may be in Greenwich Village. We could be in North Beach. Wherever our bar is for you, it's home to the hippest cats and the coolest kittens. So ask the bartender for some reasonably priced Chianti, wave the cigarette smoke away from your face, and dig the crazy scene right alongside us here in the bar. Okay, so you're ready to tie a bow on our beats? Yeah! Yeah, man! Yes! Okay. So then we can start with Dobie Gillis. This is great. This is... uh, I think I'm starting to like this. (laughs) You know, after seven episodes into this new format... It's, it's the pieces are slowly sliding into place. I'm starting to understand what we're doing here. I'm sure it's episode 47, and we've been asking people to listen the whole time. But, you know, after but I really episodes, think I'm starting to get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, better that you learn eventually, I That's suppose, right. than never learn That's at right. all. No, well, I uh, think this is. Uh, I'm glad we're talking about um, Dobie Gillis today, and to. Uh, uh, a bigger degree uh, perception versus reality of the beats 
um, because this is really the touchstone for pop culture when it comes to beatniks, isn't it? Yeah, it really, really is. So let's get started talking about Dobie Gillis because I think we need to press pause as we've jumped into this conversation, Todd, and roll back the clock because even though it is a pop culture cornerstone for a certain group of people or people of a certain age and above, there are a lot of people who really didn't grow up with Dobie Gillis. And I'll be honest with you, uh, me being born in the early 70s, I really didn't. I mean, I was aware of it. My parents, I remember my mom like making oblique references to Maynard G. Krebs and stuff like that. Probably I was slacking. Telling you to get your lazy ass up (laughs) and clean your bedroom. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, it wasn't something like, I don't know, the Brady Bunch or something that like I didn't see it that much, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, same here. Same here. I, I can't really tell you. Uh, that I've ever watched a complete episode. Yeah, in, in a weird way, it. it's like the Velvet Underground of sitcoms, right? Like, <laughs> only right, a handful of right. people knew about it, but it influenced yeah. future pop culture in a big way. And I think um, there's, because of the time period, um, there were a lot of other expressions of of beatniks at the time, and they all were sort of cut from this same cloth that... Um, Dobie Gillis was laying yeah, out. Yeah, so let's talk about the history of the many loves of Dobie Gillis. So when did it start? Yeah, so it started in 1959, and it ran to okay. 1963. So based on, as you know, our past episodes, some of the beat history we've been talking about, when On the Road came out, when Howl came out, when Naked Lunch came out, This was really, 1959 was right in the wheelhouse of peak beat Mm -hmm. popularity, right? Mm -hmm. And as we've also mentioned in past episodes, to some establishment groups, the beats were really, really threatening. Because, of course, they were questioning a lot of things that were traditional and taken for granted, as we've talked about. What are the origins of this? Where did... Dobie Gillis come from? How did it get on TV? So there was a guy, uh, a writer and humorist from Minnesota, sort of the, I guess, maybe the David Sedaris of his day, a guy named Max Shulman. Mm -hmm. So Max Shulman wrote these short stories, and some of them were around a teenager named Dobie Gillis, right? Or they're this character. And it was really based on his youth growing up in Minnesota. You know, you think about the it's the 50s, you know, or, or really not, you know, it's the 50s for him when he's coming up in the series. But I think of, and this is based on nothing other than what's in my own head, I think of it as almost being like the, the childhood in like a Christmas story or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or yeah, it's that classical sort of Midwestern growing up. So anyway, he writes this TV series and it's based on a teenager named Dobie Gillis, who is played by an actor named Dwayne Hickman. And <laughs> Dobie, uh, how do we say this? He had a lot of dreams, but he didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of motivation. So he wanted popularity, money, and the attention of beautiful and unattainable girls. Hence the title, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. Every teenage boy's dream right there. Absolutely. What do you, what do you mean, teenage? 
Uh, okay, yeah, you're right. I want popularity and money. I know. I want I know. Attention. <laughs> and, the, and the attention of beautiful and unattainable <laughs> girls. So. Yeah. Sama Hayek, call me. <laughs> jingle, jingle, jingle. <laughs> uh, DM me for my number. Um, but the reason that this show is important is because, like what we were talking about earlier, is it launched the beatnik stereotype in everyone's living rooms. And this was in the form of a character that I would say overshadowed Dobie Gillis himself. He really became the reason people tuned into the show. And that was a guy named Maynard G. Kress. And uh, if you Google, for those of you who don't know him, and you Google Maynard G. Kress. Oh, you know him. Yeah, you know him. him. You just don't know that you know him. Yes, right. So this is pre-Gilligan's Island Bob Denver. Um, who, yeah. of course, was the titular character in Gilligan's Island. You have the little buddy, Gilligan. So That's right. this was kind of a goofy character um, before. Uh, this is really what I would say. This is what made Bob Denver. This is sort of, I think, what allowed his career as Gilligan to happen. I think it was, too, because it was sort of his first step into a regular TV show mm-hmm. because he had done, I think, guest appearances um, as all actors were doing back then in the studio system and Sherwood Schwartz sorry I know I'm, we're not talking about Gilligan's Island I'm a big Gilligan's Island <laughs> fan but saw um, Maynard G. Krebs and was like okay I'm looking for that sort of vacant uh, guy to play uh, a first mate <laughs> right right yeah, boom the universe provides yeah. right but okay so here's an interesting aside as we get into talking about the character Maynard so Bob Denver gets this gig Right, he's handed the script. Again, it's 1959, and he's told, "Hey, go play this beatnik character." Well, he didn't—he didn't know what the hell a beatnik was, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So he basically mm-hmm. had to go and hang out at coffee houses and cafes and quote unquote observe in their natural environment. You know, he was sort of the. Uh, the gorillas in the mist sort of idea, you know, where he was uh, <laughs> taking a look at the beats and their natural habitat and seeing how they behaved and, and everything like that. And um, I say beats, I should say beatniks, sorry, everybody. This caricature, these hangers on of beat culture. And so that's really what he based the character on, these folks that he was observing in these coffee houses. In the classic sense of what we think of a beatnik as being, Maynard loves jazz and avoids work. He dresses in ratty clothes and he sports a goatee. And of course, with any character, so you think about different strokes and the what you talking about, Willis, right? You know, mm-hmm. the little mugging yep. and the sight gags and the one liners and stuff. So Maynard Look of that course up, kids, his by uh, the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sorry. Maybe one day in the, when we're talking eighties we'll talk <laughs> yeah, about different right. strokes. <laughs> So one of the gags on the show was that whenever a character describes something disgusting or undesirable, so a character in one episode says, I'd be a ragged, dirty wreck. (laughs) And Maynard would inevitably (laughs) pop into the frame and say, you rang? (laughs) You know, that was sort of his sixth sense, right? He would show up at exactly the right and wrong moment. But, of course, each of these little third-party descriptors, Maynard enters the picture, this is, again, another sort of uh, speck of paint in the pointillist illustration of beats and beatniks on popular culture, right? And so 
This was Hollywood rounding the edges of the beats, mm -hmm. turning them into lowbrow, non-threatening caricatures, right? So if we go back and we think about the beats in their original sense, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and these folks, they were existentialists. They were questioning religion. They were questioning humanity. Right. They were really, really interested in the arts, as we've talked about. They were very interested in music. They were outsiders interested in other outsiders. This is all very, very threatening to mainstream mm -hmm. America, mm -hmm. middle America, and the media channels and advertisers who wanted to basically <laughs> get money from these folks, right? So they had to sort of... How do I say this? They had to really kind of round the edges or make less threatening these things on the fringes. Ah, don't worry about these outsiders. It's not so bad. Just focus on, you know, this vanilla stuff that we're sort of feeding you and, and things are good. You know, it makes me think that the beats were, um, they had to be known in culture. Like maybe in mainstream middle America, people had had heard that term beats but um it, it makes me think that if television shows were putting characters on there uh inspired by this or you know departure point that that people had to have had some kind of touch point for that i agree with you 100 percent. and the way i would say it is this is the show for the parents of the beat nicks Right. This is the. Oh, right. This right. is for the people who are like, uh, my kid's into something crazy. I'm not sure what it is. They're wearing sunglasses at night. They have a pair of bongos. They're listening to jazz really loud. Um, you know what's going on, right? They ain't working. Yeah, yeah. They're slacking off. Um, so what's this all about? So if it can be caricatured and being seen as is non-threatening, then it's like, oh, okay, that's a relief. It's not seen as this doom-filled sort of, uh-oh, my kid's on the road to ruin. You know, it's like, ah, it's just a phase right, they're right. going through. It's just, it's pop culture. It's it's whatever. So I found an article from 2015 that appeared on the MeTV website. And Todd, I know you love MeTV. So for I those of you who don't know what MeTV is, MeTV is kind of like all these old largely black and white so like andy griffith bonanza right or gunsmoke some of those shows so like these 50s 60s shows are being rerun all the time in syndication to the point that there's it's sort of like the child of nick at night right like it's it's just all these old syndicated reruns so the many loves of dobie gillis firmly fits into this wheelhouse right it's right in that sweet spot as we mentioned started in the late 50s it was even though color television was going on at the time that was filmed in black and white so this article is great because it manages to bash both the beatniks and the hipsters in one fell swoop so keep in mind this came out in 2015 so i want to read a quick excerpt from this article Okay. Ahem. Ahem. <clears throat> the most memorable character of the youthful sitcom would not be the Dobie, nor his many loves, but rather his charmingly work-allergic sidekick. <laughs> That's a great I phrase. I love that. <laughs> Maynard G. Krebs. To many, Bob Denver's beatnik, the jughead to Dobie's Archie, again, another reference to look yeah. up, kids, yeah. seems like the major character. 
Frankly, the younger generations who are vaguely aware of the television show can be forgiven for thinking that Bob Denver was Dobie Gillis. After all, he was the titular star of Gilligan's Island. So this is what we mentioned earlier. Yep. Beyond being a scene stealer, the comedic actor was also a pioneer for millions to follow. In bohemian enclaves in San Francisco and Brooklyn and Portland. In other words, Maynard G. Krebs was the first hipster to become a household name. Here are six ways Krebs is akin to modern hipsters. <laughs> this is a great well, list. We have a countdown list. Yeah, we, we? Okay. we do. I think this number, is a, number. Well, I, I'm not sure one. this is in any particular order, but, but okay, here, here, yeah, we'll here start we with the first one. Then. Yeah. One, he sported bad facial hair. As we mentioned, he had a goatee. Yeah. Okay. Take that, hipsters. Yeah. Number two, he liberally peppered his speech with like, which is hipster slang. That's like hipster slang. Yes. Yes. Number three, he was a music snob. As we talked about, he listened to jazz. And I remember there was an episode where he brought a transistor, a small pocket-sized transistor radio, and it was class, Uh high school class, because these guys were in their mid-20s, but they were playing high schoolers. Um, And it was like an iPod. It had a little earpiece, a white earpiece that came Mm -hmm. out of it, and Mm -hmm. he was listening to it, and he thought the teacher would never catch on. It was pretty great. Um, Spoiler alert, the teacher did catch on. (laughs) Uh, Number four, he had obscure hobbies. So uh, Maynard's, <laughs> Maynard's hobbies included collecting petrified frogs and tinfoil. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know if the frogs were wrapped in tinfoil. I think those were two separate things. Yeah. Number five. Right. Number five. He dressed like he was in a band, <laughs> which I thought was great. So, again, ratty sweatshirt, jeans with holes in them, sneakers, right, that right. sort of stuff, right? And last, but certainly not least, he marched to the beat of his own drum, (laughs) bongo. So he would tote around bongos with him and he'd be playing those, right? There's, and I want to talk about just a couple quick things uh, from specific episodes, and then we'll get into the pop culture influences, sort of the fallout, if you will, from this. So there's an episode from 1960 called Dobie Goes Beatnik. So that's the title. So Mm -hmm. they mentioned beatniks, you know, pretty specifically, where he and Maynard switch roles. So they get to play each other's characters. (laughs) And then there's another episode where Maynard's dad is reviewing the phone bill, and it's slowly revealed that Maynard called Dizzy Gillespie. So jazz idol (laughs) Dizzy Gillespie. We've talked about him. Uh, He calls Dizzy Gillespie, and it's slowly revealed he called him in Copenhagen, Denmark. Of all places, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, because that's where he was performing. And uh, what happened was Maynard got a hold of his album and just had to tell him that it was amazing. And he figured out where he was, and so he called him. And I don't think he ever got through. Or maybe he did. I don't don't remember offhand. (laughs) But anyway, the the long-distance call. So, again, kids, look up what long-distance calls were because now that's largely, uh, you know doesn't happen anymore anyway it cost his dad 28 dollars. so his dad's sitting at the kitchen table looking at the phone bill barking at him about this 28 dollar bill and that's when it's revealed like why did it cost 20 dollars? why had to call him in denmark and so i went ahead and uh looked up what that would be today and that would be 281 dollars oh wow for a single call wow but you would get to talk to dizzy gillespie uh maybe maybe that would be good and if, even if you can't visit Copenhagen, at least your voice is in Copenhagen. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, 
Spectacular. This was, uh, um, there's so many, uh, even as you were mentioning some of these people, like the Jughead to Dobie's mm -hmm. Archie, there's so many characters that I guess were uh, kind of direct takeoffs of Maynard G. Krebs um, with their own sort of spice thrown in. Um, yeah. One that yeah. popped in my mind just because we were talking about the great Bob Denver of Gilligan's Island. There was a band. Do you remember when a band came to the island and um, they were like a beat <laughs> yeah. band? They were called the Mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> they were actually called. They were actually the Wellingtons, the band that sung the theme song. But on the show, they were called uh, the Mosquitoes. Okay. And do you remember the names of the band members? Hmm. I, well, I can remember one, <laughs> just because. The, of because the, yeah. So it's yeah. Bingo, Bongo, Bango, and yeah, Irving. Irving, right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I vaguely remember this. And again, this is classic uh, Gilligan's Island logic. Other people can right. get to the island and leave, but they somehow can never leave. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And around that same time, too, another there are two other things that popped in my head that had to be influenced by this. Um, one was a movie that you and I have spoken about on a past episode. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh -huh. Remember the character, um, oh gosh, uh, Dick Sean played the character, like the, like sort of not working beach bum yep, guy. Yep, yep, he, yep, He was sort of beaten it. He, he played music. He, um, you know, he didn't want to work, but, but definitely in the beach culture. Yep. Um, the other I remember, there was um, there was a character. Well, there were a couple on the Beverly Hillbillies, which was also around that same time. Mm -hmm. And um, there was uh, one where the kids Jethro and Ellie joined the Robin Hood and the Merry Men in Sherwood Forest to rally against the man. And um, the Merry Men were very interested in learning more about Granny's smoked crawdads. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a remember I don't know if you remember this there was an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies which there was this kind of beatnik painter um uh his name was like Sheldon Sheldon Epps or something like that um yeah I do remember this vaguely so the, yeah yeah um, yeah so I the, he was actually, uh, sorry, uh, I'm going to tie these together really quick, and I'm sure there's plenty of other different uh, inspirations. Sheldon Epps was a character actor, showed up on all TV shows of that time, probably on Dobie Gillis too, played by an actor named Alan Reed Jr. So does that, does that name sound familiar, uh, Alan Reed? Of course. The voice of Fred Flintstone. It was his son who played this uh, character actor. So it's plenty of cartoon characters too. Like you already, you mentioned Jughead, right? Yeah. So, well, I didn't mention Jughead. The article writer mentioned Jughead. Okay. So I guess indirectly I mentioned Jughead. Yeah. So again, characters we are all totally familiar with, multi generational characters. So Scooby Doo. So we all know Scooby Doo. Oh, yeah. Uh, the characters in Scooby-Doo were completely boosted from the characters in this show. So mm -hmm. Freddy was based on Dobie, and if you see the actor who played uh, Dobie Gillis, you'll see what we mean. Shaggy, obviously based on our buddy Maynard. 
I mean, they both mm-hmm. even were draw, you know, have goatees. Shaggy was drawn with a goatee, sort of tall and lanky, he's a slacker. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. And then Gary Marshall, who was the creator of Happy Days, mentioned he drew inspiration from the many loves of Dobie Gillis when he was putting Happy Days together, you know, with the cast of characters. Hmm. You think about high school, the 50s, all that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Most importantly, perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, this show helped position the Beats as space cadets, non-threatening, just kind of a joke, really a punchline. Right. And... um. This is, I don't know. I I really still think that uh, in some ways, you know, is perception better than reality or or what, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I tend to fall on the side of, um, I tend to fall on the side of authenticity, I think. And yeah. um, uh, like we've talked about before with a bunch of other things with like street culture and a bunch yeah, of our other... Yeah topics that when mainstream gets a hold of something it starts to lose some of its magic or it starts to lose some of this flavor not least of all because the originators of it move on to something else right now one thing about the beats in my opinion as we get into some of this um you know again myth versus reality and we and we jump in is I love the fact that a lot of these guys sort of stuck to their guns and stuck with things. We talked about Allen Ginsberg ended up being a real counterculture figure in general. He almost transcended the beats. He even transcended the hippies. He was counterculture into the grunge era even. You know, yeah, he was still yeah. relevant in the 90s, which we'll get to in some future episodes. Um, William Burroughs, same thing. So a lot of these guys in my opinion, really have this kind of shelf life or this evergreen thing about them, this kind of magic that transcends time. Now, that's me, of course, being a fan of the beats, and uh, and you might have a different opinion. Well, it's interesting because it, I totally hear what you're saying and can I would certainly have loved to have spent some time with Ginsburg or Kerouac and just just talking um, but I have to imagine they'd be way more serious than Maynard G. Krebs would be. So I might have more oh, fun yeah. oh, with yeah. with Shaggy and Maynard G. Krebs. Yeah, yeah, eating Scooby snacks and 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 yeah, Irving. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, right on the island. But Absolutely. you know, if, if you, but think about like um, what we know about the Beats and kind of what we've uncovered from some of our previous episodes. Um, they weren't necessarily doing this for fame and, and fortune. They were doing this as a, as a reason, as a, as a means to self-expression, as a new type of expression. So I would have to imagine if they were caught a glimpse of a television show with a character that was a parody of them, you know, they were kind of like double miffed. Like, first of all, that's not what we're about. And secondly, they're getting famous with this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they're making money there. Um, and, and it goes back to what you said earlier. Obviously, if you're making fun of something. Right. So right. think about our love of Mad Magazine, for example. If you don't understand the thing that's being parodied, right, the parody right. won't land. The joke doesn't work. 
Definitely the beats were on people's minds for sure. And I found this clip from a fellow, a historian named Stephen Petrus, and he was writing about how the beats got started. And, and this mm-hmm. really closes the circle, I think, on how we started this whole conversation several episodes ago. He wrote, Shaped by the effect of the senseless murder of World War II and the knowledge of a possible instant death by an atomic explosion or a slow deterioration by the cancerous force of conformity, the hipster responded to his situation by detaching himself from society and rebelling. So I bring that up because a lot of these folks who came back from World War II, as we talked about before, I thought that this sentence was a really, really good summary because it's sort of like, okay, well, for years when I was overseas fighting the war, I was staring death in the face. I didn't know when I woke up in the morning if I would live to see the end of that day. Then I come back. And then rather than being killed instantly, I'm going to be slowly ground into a fine dust by this Mm, suburban mm -hmm. conformity. And I'm sure that coming back and sharing some of these stories of the Second World War versus what people on the home front were being told and the difference there. I think these folks were like, uh, some of this propaganda or these people were being fed bullshit, right? And so to push against that and say, hey, I know that the mainstream wants you to say this and believe this, but uh, when the mainstream was saying that 10 years ago, they were actually tricking you. (laughs) Hmm. You could argue that prohibitionists and, and, and flappers and people in the 20s were pushing back and rebelling kind of in the Great Gatsby age a little bit, the Gilded Age. But I think these guys were really in large scale and i think it was with the arrival of mass media just emerging that they were able to get traction with what they were doing like inadvertently getting traction it's not like they said oh well here's our media plan (laughs) let's go out and do this yeah yeah but you know again they had these books published they were able to have these speaking gigs they started to appear on television And uh, in Life magazine, there were these magazines that everybody was reading, as we talked about in some past episodes. So it really was no one thing, but it was a culmination of all these different things. Yeah. And so, as you were saying, uh, and you and I have observed this before, and we we recognize um, that in the world of pop culture, it's like physics. The physics of pop culture, there's always an equal and opposite reaction to an action so you could replace world war ii with vietnam war and then you've got uh the summer of love uh that was a huge cultural um shift um you can replace in the um 80s with the fall of the berlin wall and what happened after that and then certainly Mm -hmm. um um uh, September 11th and the Iraq war and things like that. So there's always that that push and pull that that really advances art in all different forms. And I wonder, you know, maybe it's because we're in the middle of it now and it's and it's sort of difficult to see, but I just wonder if if we are 
able to have another kind of massive reaction to something now, or is everything so um, um, specialized? Like, it, does everything have its own Pinterest channel now, you know, that you can look at, instead of, like, the world knowing these, these pop culture swings that have happened? Man, Todd, you just got really heavy. I know, you know, maybe it's time for another drink. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to the bar. <laughs> Let's uh, uh, wet our whistles, and we'll be back here in just a minute. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it. But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Yeah, how do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, two designers walk into a bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now back to the bar. Okay, Todd, so now that we've uh, gotten our drinks refreshed, and thank you, by the way, for uh, paying. You're not aware that you did, what? but I, I appreciate your generosity. Well, I, t- I uh. work with a bartender. Uh, he, he's a buddy. He's looking out for me. Anyway, so let's talk about the term beatnik. So where did beatnik come from? Um, so the term beatnik was coined by a journalist named Herb Kahn, and and he was a humorist and a journalist working for the San Francisco Chronicle. And on April 2nd, 1958, he published this seminal column. He came up with it by blending the name of the recent Russian satellite Sputnik. And if All you right, recall, right. at the beginning of our podcast episodes, we in the series, we talked about Sputnik. And that had gone up in October of 57. And then the Beat Generation. So obviously Beat and Sputnik, you get Beatnik. So his naming suggests that Beatniks were, quote, far out of the mainstream of society. So space, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. possibly pro-communist, right? Sputnik, Beatnik. So his term stuck and became the popular label associated with this stereotype. 
So again, it's the other. You're arousing suspicion. Mm -hmm. They're outsiders, mm -hmm. right? Can't mm -hmm. be trusted or can't be understood. So what is this stereotype exactly? You and I danced around it with Maynard G. Krebs. We've, yep. we've loosely talked about it uh, throughout this series. Um, to quote Alan Bisbort, who is the author of a book, Beatniks, A Guide to an American Subculture, uh, and this is another excerpt, and I think he, he does a good job describing this. Quote, the men sporting goatees and or Abe Lincoln beards. Stinking Lincoln. <laughs> striped sailor shirts or black turtlenecks. Chinos, sandals, berets, Ray-Ban sunglasses worn indoors and at night. The women decked down in black, shape-enhancing sweaters, uh -huh. black tights. Black berets, black horn-rimmed glasses, often barefoot and given to spontaneous bursts of solo interpretive dancing. Bongo drums, yes. Chianti bottles and espresso cups can also be found scattered about the beatnik pad, quote-unquote, while improvised poetry and jazz flows freely. End of quote. Sounds fun. I, yeah, again, okay. That's cool. I want to hang out. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah no, really. Put me, I'll, I'll dance and twirl and get me some But Chianti. this really started to go overboard. In fact, it got so bad that someone started, this is a true story, someone started a rent-a-beatnik service, and they ran ads oh, in the Village man. Voice. One of your scenes, Greenwich Village. So you could get uh -huh. a male beatnik, you get a female beatnik, or you could get both to show up at your pad to entertain your friends. So these, of course, were actors in, in costume who would show up. But uh, <laughs> again, if I had to guess, for the people in Greenwich Village, it, they were so steeped in the actual culture, it was probably a goof, right? But if if mm -hmm, you it were mm -hmm. to hire a beatnik in Des Moines, it might have been a different story. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, so this was a subculture, right? This is a counterculture, as we talked about. These people weren't trying to be understood. They were trying to understand philosophy, oh, religion, literature, humanity. This was heavy shit, uh, especially yeah. in post-World War II America, square America, as we've been talking about. And it was seen as, by many, to, to be, you know, to put it mildly, unpatriotic. As we mentioned a minute ago, uh -huh. some said it might be uh -huh. communist. And these uh -huh. young white people were embracing alternative music, bebop music. Todd, they were embracing black music. Oh, my. It matched the mood them. and tempo and speed of Kerouac, Ginsburg, Cassidy, and the rest of this core group that we've been talking about. And this ran counter to the ideas of settling down in suburbia in a predictable monoculture. So I completely right. get what these folks were pushing against. Okay, so we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. We're going to start discussing, just like Dobie Gillis, some other cornerstones of the beat Nick culture that helped shape this stereotype. But before we do that, I want to get into a few artifacts that are out there that you or me or anybody can lay their hands on. Um, so the first one, and Todd, this one is, is near and dear to both of our hearts. I think you're going to go out. In fact, I'm worried if I mention this, you're not going to finish this episode with me because you're going to... I'm just going to dash yeah, out you're gonna right there. You're going to leave your okay. pad, All right. get in your car, and Sounds go great. look for kicks. Signet <laughs> okay. Books yeah. released a paperback in 1960 titled Like Mad with our friend Alfred Ooh. E. Newman on the cover. And, of course, he is illustrated with his glasses, his beret, his goatee, and his turtleneck sweater. 
I want to also read the, the Love it. some of the back cover copy for you, okay? Okay. Go for it. Are you a member of the Beat Generation? If you are, this book is definitely not for you. No, sir. The gang at MAD hasn't given up. <laughs> They're still in there, scraping and screaming, waging their relentless fight against Madison Avenue hucksterism, television mediocrity, Hollywood absurdity, modern conformity, and a steady stream of irate bill collectors. <laughs> and they're carrying on that relentless battle like mad. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if like the bill collectors were coming after the reader or if they were just coming after the staff of mad. <laughs> they were coming yeah, after the I'm staff thinking. of yeah. mad. Yeah. yeah. So it was really funny. And that's great. If you look at the contents of the, the book. It wasn't like any sort of, beaten it guide or it was just a best of compilation they just decided to again capitalize on the fact it was 1960 so this is about a year into the run of Dobie Gillis and like whatever you know so again it's just just another way to parody what everybody right. started to talk about so that's the first one then the second one is Rhino Records and I mentioned this box set in a past episode they have a box set called the Beat Generation I own it I love it, and I'm going to put a link to it on our episode page. And this box set is great because it has very legitimate beat artifacts like Allen Ginsberg reading Howl, all the way up to interviews on the street with some of these hangers-on, some of oh, these yeah? beatniks, to songs that completely parody beat culture all the way to some of these jazz favorites we've talked about like ooh ba ba da remember that remember I love Babs yeah, Gonzalez yeah. so Babs makes there you go again there. I know I'm telling you yeah, Todd like I was swing inspired. man yeah yeah dig it see and then the now, last we're one, following it we're following into a perception <laughs> and not a reality <laughs> I know, I know. We're we're suckers too, but we're also fans of pop culture. So I guess that's we, true. That's we're, true. We're knowingly doing. We, it, that's right. See. That's right. We knowingly do it. Yeah. So the last one is there's a comic artist named John Stanley who, in 1961, put out a comic called Kooky, K-O-O-K-I-E. So not oh, because it is Kooky. Yeah, that observed and parodied beat culture and beatnik culture. So. His influences came from living in Greenwich Village and what else? Dobie Gillis. Like he admits oh, that go. he was looking at Dobie Gillis when he wrote this. And we'll put some pages of this on the episode page because it's pretty great. So one of the gags, one of the sight gags, it's several panels on the single page in the comic. It's focused on these two beatnik guys, their friends, and they're walking down the street. And they're having what you think is this heavy existential conversation about uh -huh. being scared and what the future holds and what they're about to enter and all this sort of thing. And then they're like, all right, are you ready to go? Yeah, man, let's do it. And then it, it's this sort of wide overhead shot. And you realize they were just about to walk through a city park. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you think it's this heavy philosophical thing. And it was just, you know... It, and I, I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it at the risk of alienating some listeners. It reminds me a little bit of an article I read a few years ago about millennials uh, yeah. not being able to do certain things. And I read an article written by a millennial about how challenging it was to mail a physical envelope because she had to find a stamp and address the envelope <laughs> and then find a mailbox. to put. I'm not making this no, up. No, yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I had to pay a bill with a check. 
um, not long ago, and it was like I was writing the Magna Carta out. I was like, oh, my God, am I ever going to get <laughs> finished with this fucking check? How many zeros do they have? <laughs> yeah, not many. Not many. Mailed to me. <laughs> have you ever tried to spell out a number, though? Oh, my God. I was like, forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. Oh, that's, that's good yeah, stuff. Yeah, do you want to talk about, um, in addition to Dobie Gillis, can we talk about one more show that was totally influenced by beat culture? Absolutely. Okay. We have some time. What, yeah, what do you what do you have in mind? Am I supposed to pick one here? I'll tell you what. I'm, let's uh why don't we each do one? A show, an entire show. Well, okay, let me get started and this may prime the pump for okay. you. How about that? Okay, okay, okay. That sounds good. You ever hear of a little show? Well, I'll tell you what. Let me say the title and you tell me if a piece an iconic piece of music doesn't immediately pop into your head when I say the title, okay? Okay, I wonder if we're thinking of the same thing. Yeah, All go right. ahead. Route 66. That's not what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Do you cool. remember that show? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Route 66. It's on MeTV also. <laughs> yeah. There's probably an article about it. <laughs> so Route 66 ran. It, it was somewhat overlapped with Dobie Gillis. It started a year or two later. So it started in 1960, ran to 1964 on uh, on CBS. And spoiler alert, Todd. It was not, in fact, set on Route 66. What? I know, I know. In fact, the Mother Road, so Route 66, again, for all you pop culture aficionados, of course, known as the Mother Road, went from Chicago to Santa Monica, the first highway. Um, is Route 66 is only mentioned in three out of 116 episodes. Huh. So, not very self-referential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. But to the producer's credit, Route 66 is one of the few television series to be filmed entirely on the road. So literally, they were going and doing all these location shoots. And the reason for that is they wanted the people and their accents and their livelihoods and ethnic backgrounds and attitudes to vary from one location to the next. So as they were filming these different episodes, they wanted a certain patina of authenticity. Yeah, that sounds like that fits. Uh, yeah, I think so. Were going about. back and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were explorers. They were going out and, and doing these different things. So the show, going back to again, how do you clean up, how do you package, how do you synthesize something for middle America? So this was sort of a cleaned up and packaged version of Kerouac's book On the Road, right? Yeah, so for the people yeah. in suburban America who maybe had some degree of wanderlust but weren't going to indulge in it, let's say, you know, they felt too safe or, you know, there's too much already set up, they could get a window into that a little bit through this show. Mm -hmm. So what was this about? So like the novel... The show centered around two guys. So if you recall, in the novel, it was Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, guys traveling around the country in search of quote-unquote kicks. However, instead of a filthy Hudson, they had a gleaming Corvette convertible. And uh, 
Again, thinking about marketing opportunities, Chevy was kind enough to provide this car each oh. year as a product placement. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you, you go. Know? So one of the actors was a guy named George Maharis, um, and he played Buzz Murdoch. And he even looked similar to Kerouac. So if you were to go online and you look at photos of Kerouac, you look at photos of him, and we'll let, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go ahead and we'll do a side-by-side on this episode all right, page. All right. And that way you be the judge, uh, listener. Um, but yeah, it was the, the similarity was not coincidental, I think. Um, Kerouac actually wanted to sue for copyright infringement, <laughs> but he was advised against it apparently due to a quote-unquote lack of evidence. So apparently this idea of a road trip, Kerouac didn't own this, two people being in a car, he really uh-huh. didn't own uh-huh. that. And today it might be a little different. There might be you know text messages or search histories or whatever, but I guess apparently <laughs> there wasn't a paper trail that could link the creators to say, yes, this was directly inspired from on the road. And there were also a ton of guest actors either on their way down or up in their careers. Like you had talked about earlier with Bob Denver kind of coming up before right, landing right. Maynard's uh, role. <laughs> Two quick examples, Todd. Now, you know how you and I just love the variety that pop culture provides. So, again, if I were yes, to yes. put a bunch of random celebrities on pieces of paper and, like, put them in a pillowcase and you had to draw two names out, <laughs> I, I would I'd be very okay. curious. So, literally, these are two people who are both on this show. Are you ready for this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what. Let's play a game. You tell me one of them and then I'll guess. I'll have <laughs> okay. to guess the other. Because if they're that because I'll never get okay. it because okay. they're Here so we go. random. Well, the first the first guy okay, go I ahead. just yeah. I love that this was a, an actor on the show. Okay. So again, I'll I'll tell you what. I'm willing to okay. give you right. a hint again just think about the time frame. So 1960 to 1964. Okay. okay. All right. So, got it. Got it. And I'll give you a hint. The guy I'm going to mention is someone who is on the way down. This is the, the okay. name I'll, I'll state. And then the one you have to guess is someone who is in their ascendancy, let's say. They're they're on their way up. And they're oh. still alive today. Okay. Are you, are you ready? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. My guy is yep. not alive today. Or, may, or maybe he is based <laughs> on one of the characters he played. Okay. <laughs> Boris Karloff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. He was on the way. That's the guy yes. on the way down. So the, the, the guy that was ascending, uh, uh, Buddy Hackett. <laughs> How, uh, I, am I close? Uh, slightly, <laughs> no. slightly better looking. Uh, okay. Oh, um, okay. Uh, Peter Fonda. Mm, getting warmer. <laughs> It, was it uh, it's someone that was a serious actor? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But I think ser- serious actor, but somebody who... Okay, can I give you a subtle hint? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, because okay. I'm never going to get that. But if you were... With Boris Karloff. <laughs> if you were to run into them, this person, on the streets of Sundance, I'm sure they would be very nice and want to talk to you. Oh, Robert Redford. Yep, a young Robert Redford. Oh, are Redford. you kidding me? Robert Redford <laughs> free, and Boris Karloff. <laughs> free, I mean, I'm not saying they were on the same show, like the same episode. But they were on the yeah, show. Yeah, they were on yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, that's, that's funny. great. Hey, everybody's got to start somewhere. And everybody's got to end somewhere, too. Right, Boris? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, again, going back to what I said when we started this conversation, if anyone remembers anything about this show, so typical listener 
If you have never seen this show, you will know the theme music from Nelson Riddle. I guarantee mm-hmm. it. There's mm-hmm. no way you've never heard this music. The reason that he wrote this, so naturally you're thinking, well, the show's called Route 66. Why wouldn't you have the the song Get Your Kicks on Route 66, right? This is a right. popular song. Right. Well, uh, the producers didn't want to pay the royalties to Bobby Troop to use the song. So oh. they went to Nelson Riddle and they were like, just write something new. Now, the <laughs> irony, of course, is I would argue Riddle's uh, theme music is probably more familiar. If not just as familiar, it's more familiar. Um, right. And Todd, just a closing thought. This theme is also on my Rhino Records box set. You know, I've got it on my uh, TV theme show um, ah. set too. So yeah, so I would say it probably is more popular. Is this by the original artists? Yeah, that band. <laughs> they, they, yeah, the ones that showed up on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> That's the original artist. <laughs> That's Bingo Bongo Bango on Irving. <laughs> yeah, Irving. Yeah, Irving. I heard was great on that on the Route 6060. One quick thing, of course, not to be outdone. Mad Magazine parodied the show <laughs> in April 1962, and it was called Route 67. That was <laughs> so great. Okay, so better. yeah, so it's so if Mad parodies it, it is obviously a hit. Hundred percent. Okay, so that's a lot that we've covered in this whole series, Elliot, of things, and clearly uh, you've laid out the beats, their origin. Um, how they were parodied as beatniks, and uh, there's so much cultural impact to that too, right? So some of this uh, we've talked about in our past episodes. So we've talked about Ken Kesey, we talked about his bus further, we talked about Neil Cassidy being the, the bus driver, you talked about the hippies and the summer of love. Right. So this was really all chronicled in the electric Kool-Aid acid test. So, you know, the Tom Wolf book. Right. So this was about the transition of the beat generation into the hippies. And so, as we mentioned before, a lot of these things that the hippies take credit for, actually the beats were the ones who blazed the trail for it. And Going back to, we had mentioned earlier, our street culture episode. Todd, I know you love Ed Big Daddy Roth. I love Ed Big Daddy Roth, yes. And I feel that we would be doing him an injustice if we did not mention one of his signature cars, the Beatnik Bandit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll have pictures on the episode website. Yep, yep. We all And trust me, again, sort of like this Nelson Riddle music, yes. anybody who's a car person, even if an image is not popping in your head once we post an image you'll say oh yeah i've seen that well yeah like, there's and, no way oh dude we could do a, a whole episode on just beat cars from the monsters wagon to yep. dragula to yep. you know the joker mobile and batman i'm so many things there so many things there. <laughs> such inspiration And then last but not least, we've talked about William Burroughs a little bit. And he's considered really the forefather of postmodern literature. And uh, he did, you know, his cut-ups where he would write things down, cut them up, put them back together. He was really doing a lot of experimental things with the form. And he also is credited with really inspiring the cyberpunk genre. Like some of his Mm. stuff was Mm -hmm. just so surreal that um, it really paved the way for what we think about in the 80s and 90s with cyberpunk. Um, 
So thinking about all of this, so if we can really stretch our arms out and wrap it around all of these things that we've been talking about for the last several episodes, what are some of these big takeaways, right? Yeah. I've done yeah. my best to try to distill it down to three, right? Rules of three. Um, so the first one is mainstream culture is often influenced by the counterculture, either through mockery, um, which in turn provides additional exposure that this counterculture wouldn't have otherwise received, mm-hmm. or embracing and attempting mm-hmm. to commercialize it, causing it to be dumbed down as the originators mm-hmm. abandon it for something more novel, which we've talked about. And I think the beats, both mm-hmm. things really happened. Right? You had people who were trying to make it non-threatening, and then you had other people who were trying to make a buck. <laughs> right, right. Um, su- such is pop culture in the United States. I would say the second thing is often people poke fun at what they don't understand to make it less threatening, mm-hmm. as we've talked about. And if the beats could be seen as these space cadets rather than intellectuals with a point, it was less challenging to middle America. Go about right, your business, right, nothing right. to see here. You know, these guys are just in their heads. And then the last thing is the beats, even when seen through the distorted lens of beatniks, quote unquote, like I mentioned earlier, they really laid the groundwork for the resistance movements in the United States. And um, having said that, Todd, I have a feeling that this is a nice pass of the baton and we're going to go more into one of those resistance movements in our next episode. Oh, you're absolutely right, Elliot. Yes, we're going to pick up um, not necessarily a linear connection um, to the beats, mm-hmm. but another creative scene, because you know how I dig that, um, that yep. will be picked up right around the time the, the beat era was uh, traditionally kind of coming to a close. Um And we're going to ride that era for roughly a decade. And we're going to be talking about uh, the mayor of that decade uh, is going to be Andy Warhol and his influence from starting the factory in the uh, early to mid-60s and then bringing that into uh, really uh, well-known prominence in all types of media and influencing music and uh, we'll, we'll mm-hmm. be talking about album covers and things that we've talked about in the past. Um, and uh, there obviously is uh, protests involved that are affecting that slice of pop culture. And there's uh, excess and uh, debauchery to be had, too. <laughs> yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking, um, obviously, Warhol was a trendsetter. Right. And there was also controversy around him. I mean, he was also an agitator, I would say. So, And he definitely, of course, mined pop culture, mined right. brands and, and everything like this. But he also surrounded himself with interesting and sometimes super sketchy. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Very much like yeah, the Yeah, and I would say where he zagged, where they may have zigged, was he was unapologetically making money off of... Uh, all of that, including the the some mm-hmm. of the sketchy people that he hung out with. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, Todd, speaking of sketchy people and making money, <laughs> uh, yet again, I find my drink uh, to be empty, and I'm wondering if we might be able to, in the true spirit of Maynard G. Krebs, help oh, a brother boy. out. Oh, boy. You rang? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm feeling I'm feeling down and tuckered and dry and ragged. <laughs> I'm just feeling thirsty. Okay. All and right. Till next time. Yeah, and thank you to all the listeners for uh, coming along with us on our journey through uh, beat culture. We really, really appreciate you being a guest with us here in the bar. I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.